0: The Anti Nuclear Movement. How does one become involved in fighting against nuclear issues in the first place? Does it really require a personal experience of nuclear dangers and terrors in order to move a person into action? What does it take to grow that movement against nuclear? It's a hard set of questions, but then you hear a woman who cares so much about the environment that she organizes the annual Taos Environmental Film Festival. And Jean Stevens introduces a panel of activists who are fighting against nuclear by telling you...
1: We're now going into a new Cold War, and unfortunately it's happening 45 miles upwind from Taos. We are downwinders, and it is very important that everyone realize the danger that we all face in case there was a meltdown of some sort or an accident.
0: Well... If you need a personal involvement and experience with nuclear issues to kickstart your activism, and you suddenly discover that there you are in New Mexico, only 45 miles downwind of what could easily be the site of a life-changing nuclear incident or accident or disaster, then you too just might find the focus, energy, and anger to fight back in an effort to get out of that awful seat that we all share
1: nuclear hot seat what are those people thinking
2: nuclear hot seat what have those boys been drinking
3: nuclear hot seat
2: the corium is sinking our time to act is shrinking but our activists are linking nuclear hot seat
0: get it wrong. This week, we celebrate the work of the Taos Environmental Film Festival, which put on the Taos August Peace Pilgrimage on August 8, 2021. That was to commemorate the 76th anniversary of the United States dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Included in the event was a panel discussion, where anti-nuclear and peace activists shared their views on the problems and possible solutions for nuclear dangers at two New Mexico sites—the Los Alamos National Laboratory, which is being tasked by the government with producing 30 plutonium pits a year for megabombs we do not need, and the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, which is already storing low- and mid-level radioactive nuclear fuel— but is being proposed for expansion beyond its intended storage capacity and its use-by shutdown date of 2025. You'll hear from six activists with six strong perspectives and a lot to say, including practical suggestions that anyone, whether you're fighting nukes in New Mexico or your own backyard, can use to up the amps, attract members, and put pressure on politicians to get these potential disasters under control. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numnets of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than could be heard over the noise of the airplanes leaving Kabul airport. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, August 17, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news, from a different perspective, starting here in the U.S., where the Nuclear Regulatory Commission slapped the wrist of New Hampshire's Seabrook Station nuclear plant, saying that the staff did not adequately account for future progress of, of alkali Silica Reaction, or ASR, in their prompt operability determination for several Seabrook structures. The 30 year old atomic reactor has concrete infected by ASR, an irreversible type of concrete degradation caused by water reacting with the concrete. It has been called concrete cancer. So it's not just people who can get cancer from nukes, nukes can give it to themselves. The NRC imposed four new license conditions that direct Next Era, the owner of Seabrook, to conduct much more frequent and stringent monitoring and engineering evaluations. This ruling was in response to a suit that was filed, a legal challenge brought by C-10, Research and Education Foundation, and its executive director, Natalie Hild Treat, who was interviewed on this issue for Nuclear Hot Seat No. 483 of September 23, 2020. At issue was the fact that three structures at Seabrook had widening cracks that exceeded their design limits, and a fourth one had cracks that were approaching the limits. And now for some evil numnuts that goes way beyond nuclear boneheadedness. Nuclear hot seat,
2: nuclear
0: hot seat, nuclear hot seat, numbnuts out of week. As that old song goes... War. Hoo! Good God, y'all. What the heck is good for? Absolutely nothing. Unless you're a weapons maker. In which case, yowza! Break out the champagne. The Washington, D.C.-based advocacy group Public Citizen sent out a tweet last week saying, Entrenching U.S. forces in Afghanistan was the military-industrial complex's business plan for 20-plus years. The group added, Hawks and defense contractors co-opted the needs of the Afghan people in order to line their own pockets. Never has it been more important to end war profiteering. In today's tweet, Public Citizen highlighted returns on defense stocks over the past 20 years, as calculated in a jaw-dropping analysis by The Intercept, and stated, The military industrial complex got exactly what it wanted out of the war. Focusing on the five biggest defense contractors Boeing, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics it was calculated that a $10,000 investment in stock, evenly split across those five companies on the day in 2001 that then President George W. Bush signed the authorization preceding the U.S. invasion. That $10,000 would be worth $97,295 this week. Put a different way, defense stocks outperformed the stock market overall by 58% during the Afghan war. This may be the very definition of blood money. The Intercept's John Schwartz, who examined the returns on these stocks and came up with these numbers, said that the number suggests that it is incorrect that the Taliban's immediate takeover of Afghanistan upon the U.S.'s departure means that the Afghanistan war was a failure. On the contrary, from the perspective of some of the most powerful people in the U.S., it may have been an extraordinary success. And that's why warmongers, weapons manufacturers, and those who support them with your investment dollars, you are this week's
2: your
5: hot seed,
0: Num Nuts out of the week. That was evil numnuts, Nuts. And if you want to know a good way to fight back against that, listen to our 90 second PSA from Susie Snyder of Don't Bank on the Bomb. It's going to be in the activist shout out section at the end of the program. Over to Japan, where we learn once again that smoking is bad for you, especially when you're a nuclear power plant. The company that operates the Hamoka Nuclear Power Plant in Shizuoko Prefect, southwest of Tokyo, confirmed on Tuesday, August 17, the presence of smoke in a building that houses a turbine of one of the reactors. This was noted after fire alarms went off. This was in addition to a report that last Thursday, August 12, the plant reported a fire in which smoke emanated from an electrical wire on the premises. The company, Chubu Electric Power Company, has not reported any injuries or leakage of radioactive material at the plant and its surroundings at the moment, which implies that more may be revealed. The Hamoka Nuclear Power Plant has been considered for years as one of the most dangerous atomic facilities in the world because of its location in an area where two major continental plates meet. It suspended its operations in May of 2011, two months after the nuclear triple meltdown in the Fukushima nuclear facility was triggered by a massive earthquake and tsunami. Many citizen organizations have called for the permanent shutdown of the Hamaoka plant. The decision regarding its final closure remains in the air, along with all that smoke. Japan's Nuclear Regulatory Authority said that it will stop its evaluation of the number 2 unit at the Tsuruga Nuclear Power Plant in Fukui Prefecture after discovering that its operator, Japan Atomic Power Company, tampered with key geological data related to a fault underneath the facility. This puts in doubt the restart of the reactor after a 10-year shutdown. In February 2020, Japan Atomic Power had been found to have rewritten data analyzing a drilling survey conducted on an area below the Tsuruga complex premises, and most of the altered data involved geological data collected at points that are critical in determining whether the fault running underneath the reactor is active or not. We'll have this week's special feature in just a moment, but first, when I was just starting Nuclear Hot Seat, I attended a Hollywood industry event and ran into some women producers I hadn't seen for several years. When I told them I was doing a weekly show on nuclear issues, they kind of sniffed the air as if a rank order had just made itself known and asked, is there even enough nuclear information to fill an hour-long program every week? To which I can only respond. Is there ever a week without a lot of nuclear somethings to grab our attention, stoke our fears, motivate our activism? Fires, floods, human error, the decay of aging technology, or just terrorists gaining control of a country and possibly the means to steal themselves some radioactive goodies from the country next door? Nuclear is a mess, one that mainstream media tends to avoid as too difficult a story to tell, too not sexy enough to grab a viewer's limited attention span in 30 seconds or less. And that is why Nuclear Hot Seat is here, to help you know what's going on in the nuclear world and what you can do about it. At Nuclear Hot Seat, we're dedicated to giving you the nuclear stories you can't find in mainstream media, and we provide vetted facts with context and continuity so you get the full picture. But in order to continue to do our work, We need your help. And that's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red Donate button, and help with a donation of any size. Five dollars a month, same as a cup of coffee. Buy us a cup of coffee every month. I promise it won't go to caffeine. Please, if you value Nuclear Hot Seat, do what you can now. And know that however much you can help, you have my gratitude. Here's this week's special feature. New Mexico is pretty much ground zero when it comes to nuclear dangers and potential atrocities. That's where Los Alamos was invented as an isolated home for scientists trying to create and build the world's first atomic bomb, which they did, and then they exploded the first one in New Mexico on July 16, 1945. The Los Alamos National Laboratory, known by its acronym LANL, has been now tasked with building 30 plutonium pits a year to create 30 cores for more nuclear bombs, any one of them more than 500 times the destructive power of the Hiroshima bomb. Then there's the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIP. It couldn't be an official government site without an acronym, could it? WIP is supposed to sequester low- and mid-level transuranic waste, meaning materials that have become radioactively contaminated through nuclear manufacturing and handling of the materials. But now, even as it's supposed to be shut down within four years, WIP is being proposed for not only expansion, but an extension to operate for another 60 years, with waste being shipped to it by truck and train from all over the nation, so that all the nation's radioactive nuclear waste converges in New Mexico. As you might imagine, there are citizens in New Mexico who are really upset about these developments and have been working for years to stop them. Six of them were brought together on August 8, 2021, to speak on a panel at the annual Taos Environmental Film Festival. The panel featured six knockout activists from a range of backgrounds and was recorded by Robin Collier of KCEI Radio in Taos for broadcast. KCEI is one of the earliest and most robust supporters of Nuclear Hot Seat, carrying the show every week, and we are pleased to be able to reciprocate by making excerpts of their program available to you. The moderator for the panel is Bud Ryan, He is a peace and justice activist and made an anti-nuclear documentary with Stuart Overby called The Forgotten Bomb. This film won Best Documentary from the Irvine International Film Festival in California and is a featured film at the August Peace Pilgrimage in Taos. Bud begins with a question to the panel, and the answers start off with Joni Ahrens. Joni has been a guest many times on Nuclear Hot Seat for her work as the Executive Director of Concerned Citizens for Nuclear Safety, or CCNS. This is a group she co-founded in 1988 to address community concerns about what was then the proposed transport of radioactive toxic and hazardous waste from Los Alamos National Laboratory. First Bud, then Joni. What brought
3: you to this point about nukes? What was the spark that got you involved? For myself, I'm from New York City. I attended the million-person march in Central Park when Reagan was president. But after that happened, it was out of my consciousness for the most part. It wasn't until I went to Hiroshima and got to go to the Peace Museum in 1991, and that changed my life. So, Joni, what got you
2: So this is a true confession. Before I moved to New Mexico, I was a registered Republican living in San Francisco. When I moved here in 1986, on March 24th, 1988, I attended a Department of Energy and New Mexico Environment Department, and I'll call them the NMED. They were going to talk about the proposed transportation of nuclear waste from LANL to the then unopened waste isolation pilot plant. The meeting was held at the old Sweeney Center, downtown Santa Fe, and the DOE officials said, "'Trust us, everything's gonna be okay.'" But they couldn't even get the slide projector to work properly. And then the PR person from the environment department stood up and he stood like Nixon when Nixon said, "'I'm not a crook,' and said, "'Trust us, everything's gonna be okay.'" And then Don Hancock from Southwest Research and Information Center in Albuquerque said, Don't believe a word you've heard tonight. And he went through point by point about all the problems with not only the website itself, but also the transportation issues. So a few nights later, I got together with my friend Tom O'Dowd in Santa Fe. And because we were both St. John students, we asked the question, what would Socrates do? And we agreed that he would create a dialogue. So Tom and I made signs that said whip route and it had the nuclear symbol on it. Our plan was to put the signs on St. Francis Drive to create the dialogue. And we went to see Mr. Martinez who sold chili and Latias on the corner of St. Francis and Camino Sierra Vista. And we went up to him and we said, do you know, about whip and he said, yes, it's bad for my children, my grandchildren and my great grandchildren. And we said, we have a sign. Could we put it up on your property? And he said, I'll go get my hammer. And so after that experience, it was like, oh my goodness, there's so much community support for this. And that's how I got started.
0: Next, we hear from sarah Katowski. She is a Taos artist and many other things, as well as founder of the Embudo Valley Environmental Monitoring Group, based in Dixon, New Mexico. The group organized following the May 2000 Cerro Grande fire. It collects air samples every two weeks and has done so for years to protect the community from LANL admissions. She is well informed about emergency response at LANL, as well as using her art to express concerns about nuclear weapons. Here she discusses how she got involved in nuclear issues.
5: I don't really want to go way back. I mean, I grew up in a military family, and, you know, that pretty much sets the stage for a a lot of rebellion, you know, when you hit about 11 or 12. And so rebellious teenager, father that was in Vietnam, dating Vietnam veterans, and understanding what was going on, you know, with the peace movement. Just being on the fringes mostly of any kind of activism. My big training started in 2000 after the Cerro Grande fire. I was living in a place in Rio and Medio and out of my bedroom window, where actually first we were sitting outside and saw the giant cauliflower of smoke coming off of lanol. And then at night, for many, many nights, I could see the transformer towers exploding and the trees exploding on the horizon, and it was really pretty horrifying knowing what was up there. And at the time, I was also working for a woman who had environmental illness and had a lot of anxiety besides having to deal with her health issues and I was taking care of animals at the rodeo grounds, the horses and the dogs and the cats, and that's where I started. And then Joni came up to Dixon and did a presentation, and after the presentation about the Cerro Grande fire, I came up to her and I said, well, what can I do? And it was really snowballing and very eye-opening, and, training and so many things, that's how I got started.
0: Sarah Katowski. Next came Ken Mayers. He founded Veterans for Peace Santa Fe in 2002. In 2012, he was named a Santa Fe Living Treasure. Since he resigned his commission as a U.S. Marine Corps captain in 1966, Ken has worked as a peace activist. He has promoted a variety of causes, including a freeze and cutback of worldwide nuclear weapons. As a global peace promoter, Ken has been active overseas. His professional life focuses on administration, consulting, communication systems, and helping large organizations function better. So when it comes to nukes, he's got a lot to say.
6: I grew up during World War II. My dad was in the Marine Corps. Ironically, he was in the Marshall Islands when the bomb went off. And he was very thankful for it because, at the time, of course, the word was that this was going to prevent the invasion of the homeland, of Japan, and a million deaths. Ironically, the very first newspaper headline
7: that yeah, says, A
6: bomb. And I said, Well, now what's that about? Well, quickly found out about what that was about. And, in in spite of the fact that my dad will be coming home, I said, this is a pretty horrible thing. But I grew up drinking the Kool-Aid that all Americans grow up with. My dad was called back into service for Korea. He was a gung-ho Marine. I drank Marine Corps Kool-Aid as well as the standard U.S. Kool-Aid. And so I was very proud when I won a scholarship to Princeton and took a commission in the Marine Corps. I entered the Marine Corps as a gung-ho, America is a great force for good in the world, and I spent eight and a half years on active duty as a Marine Corps officer while the Marine Corps steadily showed me what America really does. So I resigned my commission and started my uh, lifelong avocation as a peace and justice activist returning to the University of California at Berkeley to get a doctorate in political science. But the nuclear focus became clearer. In 1983, a group of high-powered business executives and professionals in the San Francisco Bay Area started a movement called Beyond War. And their intention was to impact the conversation around the presidential primaries in 1984. So they sent out 11 teams to different parts of the United States where there were early primaries, and one of the teams came to Vermont, where we were living at the time, and a team came down to Bennington, Vermont, to give us an orientation to a world beyond war. And their immediate goal was to get a group in Bennington to start giving these orientations on a weekly basis, and the orientation was a three-part series, and the first orientation was using Helen Caldicott's film about nuclear war, Uh, and uh, my late wife and I gave that orientation about 10 times a year for the next three years, and uh, that was really my start in anti-nuclear activism.
0: Ken Myers. Scott Kovac is Operations and Research Director for Nuclear Watch New Mexico. This group, along with other watchdog groups, recently filed a lawsuit against the U.S. government over its expanded production of plutonium cores for the U.S. nuclear weapons modernization plans. His explanation of how he got involved in nuclear issues is to the point.
4: In the early 2000s, I'd raised my family. The kids were out of the house. I had some spare time uh, that I didn't have before, and and I ended up uh, one day helping to put address labels on a newsletter for Nuclear Watch New Mexico, and I never left. That's how I got involved.
0: Scott Kovac of Nuclear Watch New Mexico. Also on the panel was Eric Kirschner, a noted Taos peace activist who writes important editorials on behalf of peace and the abolition of nuclear weapons. One of the big questions under discussion at this panel was, what is the biggest problem at LANL? Joni and Sarat kicked off the answers, followed by the men.
2: I think their growing attempts to further colonize northern New Mexico for their benefit is the biggest threat at this point in time, besides the plans to expand pit production. I do wanna say that as a community, we stopped three big weapons, nuclear weapons projects during Bush II. The RRW, the Reliable Replacement Warhead, the RNAP, the Robust Nuclear Earth Penetrator, and the Modern Pit Facility, which we called the BOMPLEX. We were able to defeat with colleagues regionally and nationally and internationally to defeat those projects, but the impotence was really in northern New Mexico to stop those efforts and we need to re-engage ourselves to stop these plans to further colonize northern New Mexico.
5: There's lots of problems. Expanded pit production is huge because we're talking about producing pits more than Rocky Flats produced. What a contaminating, absolutely thoroughly environmental contaminations and contamination of humans. Issues are how we collected soil samples, water samples, produce samples, and we were a little tiny organization. And no matter what we sampled, we always found radionuclides associated with nuclear weapons production, cesium 137 strontium-90, plutonium-238, 239. It was all there besides a whole array of heavy metals. And how could they collect samples? And they never found anything that was above regional levels. So it's the way that they whitewash everything. They water it down. Just like a good patriarch, they pat you on the head and tell you to go away and say, oh, this is just how it is. And don't bother me anymore. Don't ask any more questions. And so I think, as Joni said, it's the culture, it's the the patriarchy. Community involvement, big issue. For me, it's
3: the smiley face that LANL puts on everything, that there's nothing wrong really going on up there. We're smart enough and we've got your best interests at
1: heart, so don't worry. They think that you're dumb enough and don't understand economics enough that you can confuse the dollars going into Los Alamos as somehow translating into benefits, although basically the the lie of false precision you know you throw so many numbers and data and experts and everything at somebody that there is no effective opposition but as uh, joni said the danger is is that they're stupefying us we're going to eventually be end up with a pile of trash and nobody's going to help us clean it up and pay for it and they're just going to say suckers they can't get rid of the ring i mean nuclear weapons Or the vehicle for world domination as far as I'm concerned.
6: The biggest challenge is overcoming the lies. You know, that we are continually fed about the need for what goes on up there in the first place, to just constantly get the truth out as these folks do.
4: Lately, I've been looking at Los Alamos Laboratory as a dirty bomb that's exploding in slow motion because it's a, a laboratory, they've disposed of basically every type of contaminant. They use solvents, radio radionuclides, and they've been letting it go, you know, releasing it into the environment for 75 years now. That's a main problem. The other problem is the money. The money is very attractive. People do and say things to continue to keep their jobs. Currently, it's the Supposed need for pit production at Lannell and at Savannah Riverside in in uh, South Carolina. Both of these sites are being proposed to produce 80 pits, uh, plutonium pits, which are the cores of nuclear weapons. They're planning on 50 at, at South Carolina and 30 at Los Alamos, and you know they've been allowed to do 20. The last time they did any, they, they produced 11 one year back in 2012 and haven't produced any. And so it kind of shows that we don't really need them. I mean, we, physically we didn't make any for 10 years, you know, we made 30 for a few years in the 2010s and 2011 and 2012, we made a total of 29 or 30. And it just goes to show how much we don't need them, how much it's all about money and why, you know, Los Alamos should stop making plutonium pits.
0: Then moderator Bud Ryan got into the nitty-gritty, and the discussion took off.
3: What can we do to wake the public up? Look, everybody on this stage at one time or another, or all the time, is working to get more of you people involved and create a groundswell. I said that I was there for the million person event in New York City, and it kind of melted after that to an extent. So what can we do to re-engage the public? Joni?
2: I would encourage folks that it's time, we need to stop WIP expansion. DOE is planning to double the size of WIP. And they're moving in a very incremental way to avoid having to show us the full picture of what they have planned. And so I'll say that. And number two is that we have a new tool. On January 22nd, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons went forward. And 50 countries ratified, signed and ratified the treaty. So it's in effect, and it needs to be something that we're talking about. It's how are we investing? You know, there's been a billion dollars extra that is in Lannell's budget for nuclear weapons in the last two years. So there's $2 billion on the table right now. And we need to stop that money by saying, if we have $2 billion, we need broadband in northern New Mexico. We need help with education, healthcare, all of these roads, the whole thing. And we don't want you to spend that money on pit production. We want that money to be available for the community that has suffered since 1943 with the irresponsible handling of these materials that Scott d- described and Sherry described that are throughout Northern New Mexico. So thank you for signing on to the stop forever whip and i'm just going to say one more thing in my view the department of energy is holding new mexicans hostage with this whole thing that they need to expand pit production but they also need to expand whip and the important thing is is that when i started back in the day whip was supposed to close 25 years after it opened and that year is 2024. And they're trying to keep WIP open until
5: 2080.
3: Thanks, Jimmy. Sarah? Right?
5: What we can do is we have to have more community outreach. People have to get educated about what the cost is, the, the human cost, the, env- the environmental cost, I'm really happy to see all of you people here, but next time you come to one of these events, bring somebody else. You know, you have to spread the word. If you're not spreading the word, it's not getting out. Use your social media. The new generation of our congressional delegation, they got elected through social media. And you know what? Don't say I'm too old to do that, because you're not too old. I can do it. Anybody else can do it. You know, don't argue with people about nuclear weapons. What you have to do is present them with facts, details. Did you know that to make 150 tons of weapons grade plutonium, you have to enrich 10,000 tons of uranium? What are you going to do with all that? tonnage of depleted uranium in the processing. There are so many questions you can ask. Did you know the first nuclear weapon was exploded in the Tularosa Basin and that people continue to suffer from that? Did you know that LANL is crap at emergency response? They don't know what they're doing and your emergency managers in the county, they aren't participating Participation, community outreach, this is the only way that we're going to get anything done. And sign all of Joni's petitions, CCNS. Look at her websites. Look at Scott's website. Look at the websites. They're going to give you a lot of information. These people are experts at what they do.
1: I concur with everything that's said so far. I am aware that there's a great deal of harm that comes from the production of the bomb in terms of medical, both in the mining and the transportation and the manufacture and so on. The inability to somehow engage the community in an honest discussion because it basically comes down, one pit costs about 50 million dollars in this day and age of climate change, uh, school issues, housing issues, food issues and so on to allow uh, greedy people to use the atomic bomb as a big cash cow and to hold the rest of us hostage when there's so many better uses of that money. We have to engage in that conversation and some of our commissioners are. I think at the county level, we have a majority of politicians that understand that. And anyway, I'll stop there, but I I just do wanna put in a plug for NuQuash. If you go to pit production, And modernization, nukewatch.org, very succinct. I work more closely probably with the Los Alamos Study Group, but I've got to say that's for people that want to do a deep, deep, deep dive. And as Sherry said, that's not really necessary. I think you'll get all that you need from nukewatch.org. Thanks. Tim.
6: I wonder how many New Yorker cartoons that have been over the years that feature a bedraggled looking person on a street corner holding a sign that says the end is near well folks the end is near in two ways i mean we are facing two existential crises one being obviously the global climate change crisis and the other is the insanity crisis of continuing to build these weapons that can't be used and sucking up all our resources that need to go to places where we can make a positive difference. And we simply have to wake up the community and wake up our neighbors any way we can think of. And I'll say right now, the next time our congressional representatives come up for reelection, I'm gonna be out there charging them with betrayal of the American people for continuing to support the ridiculous waste of money that's only going to poison us and to create weapons that can't be used. And it's absolutely reprehensible.
4: Thanks, Kim. Scott. I would just say support your local activists and there's several ways to do that. Sign petitions, send money, show up at meetings, bring your friends, you know, that's one level. Give Joni or give me a call and ask, you know, is there some report? Because we spend a lot of time reading environmental reports and we can use some help. You know, that is the hardest part of my job is to translate the technical jargon from the Department of Energy into something that, you know, what it means, what it means to the average person on the street. And that's what we try to do.
3: Thanks, Scott.
2: And the challenge is that there's a lie on every
3: page. So there's anti-nuclear activists from around the country that once a year go to Washington DC to lobby elected officials to stop this madness. I went one time with Stuart, the woman I made the film with. Joni was there. I think Scott was there that year. Jay was there and I would never go back again. I was so frustrated. There was a point where Bingaman, I wanted to wring his neck. But my question to everybody up here on the panel is, should we engage with our Congress people and our senators? And if you think we should, how should we engage with them? Because I've watched Joni and Scott, you know, talk to these people. and. I see them nodding to them, and then they support the labs 100%. So what do you think, Joni? How do we in- engage politicians, or should we?
2: I think we have to get more of a grassroots effort going so that they can't dismiss us.
5: I don't know. Pitchforks might work. You have to engage them, and I don't know how you do that. I mean. These elected officials for the most part are politicians and they're slippery and slimy and it's really hard to have respect for them. But other than just masses of people outpouring, I don't know how many postcards I've counted, how many postcards I've signed. And you know what? Postcards are effective. When you hand somebody a stack of postcards that's two feet tall, they can't ignore that. There's a lot of ways you can engage them besides issues. Issues are always good. And what do you call that, bird-dogging? You gotta bird-dog these people. You go to the meetings where they're there and you, you lay out some information and then you force them to answer the question in a way where they sound really bad if they agree with it. You gotta shame them into it, really. It's about all I can think of to do with a lot of them.
3: Thanks. Too often money is obviously the big thing with politicians and Lannel is giving them money or telling them there's jobs, blah, blah, blah. And they see if they're going to cut any program, it's going to lose them jobs and they won't get reelected. So we have to be there on the other side, showing them there are other voters who are
1: concerned about this other stuff. Eric,
3: what do you think?
1: I kind of want to second what Joni said. To me, it's all grassroots. I mean, politicians follow. They don't lead, you know. And until we have a large enough group to kind of put any real pressure on a politician, they're not going to listen to us. And because of the money that Lannell has and the way that the whole Constitution is organized or whatever, I've even stopped voting at federal elections, I no longer vote for the president or senator or representative, because I think that it's so controlled by money, it's just a waste of time. I don't feel that way for the roundhouse and for the local people. I mean, like right now, we have a majority, I think, on the Taos County Commission that understands that. I think Santa Fe City is getting close to the county, is getting somewhat close, the town is still, a, Up in the air, but until we have the support of our local politicians, I don't think anything above and at our roundhouse in Santa Fe, I don't think anyone in Washington, I mean, we just can't compete. I mean, to me, I don't see how that's productive.
6: I agree that bird dogging is as a way of educating not the congressman, not the senator, but the other people in the room who may be susceptible to education, and similarly, public demonstration outside of our elected official offices. Get as many people as you can to go, and again, it's a educate the public, uh, not the, the congressman. If we get enough people in the public educated, that'll take care of the congressman. Thanks,
4: Kemp. Scott? We need to educate the politicians also, and that's kind of our new quatch's job and, and some of the, some of the activists Job is to educate the politicians. We need to make our issues political election campaign issues. So when you ask them about taxes or infrastructure, we need to ask them, you know, what is their stance on nuclear weapons production at Los Alamos? We need to, we need to get that out of our politicians and vote for them accordingly and let them know that we are doing that. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. So. There have
3: been a lot of positive outcomes that have happened recently in terms of nukes. I would say that the UN declaring them illegal is a huge thing. You know, when Schultz and Kissinger and that group came out against nukes and said, we can't use these weapons, especially with Kissinger, that blew me away. So. Are you positive? Are you optimistic or pessimistic about where we're headed with nukes?
2: I'm really excited. There's a lot of young people that are involved in this effort around the world. And you can go to the international campaign on the abolition of nuclear weapons. So it's icanw.org. And there's a lot of things going on around the world where young people are taking the lead to push for abolition of nuclear weapons, including the no first use campaign. And Ken can talk about that more. So I'm really excited. I think we're at a transition point where the teeter totter is getting balanced out. And so we're waiting for more countries to sign on to the treaty and for
5: more countries to make statements
3: Thanks. Sarah? Right.
5: I can't say that I'm optimistic, but I'm also not pessimistic about it. I see that there's some hope, and yes, the next generation, the younger generation is getting involved, which is really positive. I'm still I'm in the middle on the teeter-totter, whether it's gonna flip one way or the other.
3: Thank you.
1: Eric? Yeah, I'm actually kind of optimistic I think it was a Unitarian minister said the uh, arc turns toward justice or something like that in the long run. And with what's happening at the UN and I think people are waking up and I think with climate change and COVID and homelessness and all the problems that we face, pretty soon people are gonna understand the big economic engine is supposed to be in Los Alamos. We've got 70 years of data. And New Mexico is always at the bottom. At what point? It's just like the Russians used to do this, you know, rather than produce good food, they tell you, we are producing good food, and rather than producing good schools, they'd say, you have good schools. Well, that, that's what we've come to. We're down at the bottom in so many things, and I think just eventually, people are gonna wake up. I mean, Los Alamos is gonna implode on its own. I don't believe it has the capability of making 30 pits a year safely. So by that token, I think people will slowly wake up as I and things will change for the better.
6: I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I'm engaged. You know, it appears that in many ways the world's going to hell in a handbasket. It's a little less depressing if you're engaged in trying to do something about it. So I encourage everybody to to, to get engaged. And Veterans for Peace, we have a nuclear abolition working group that has a seven-point statement of purpose that begins with no first use, putting pressure on President, State Department to declare a policy of no first use, and making that policy real by deactivating our missile, our ICBMs, that can only be used in a first use. And it moves on from there, taking all the weapons off of air trigger alert, storing the warheads separately from the missiles to gain time because they're going in exactly the wrong direction to to get hypersonic missiles and so forth. So nuclear abolition, I think there's getting more interest in it. The question is, do we have enough time? We'll only have enough time if enough people get engaged. Thanks. I still think there is
4: time to change things. And I believe that we have not passed the point where, you know, it's futile. I think that, you know, there is time, there is hope to keep at it, but it's going to take a lot of work. And it's probably going to take as much work as we've done. And it's going to seem like, you know, we're doing the same thing 10 years later that we did 10 years ago and 20 years ago but it, you know, it all works together. And I think that you know, it's gonna take the community and it's gonna take us all to flex our political muscle.
3: Joni, do you have something you wanna add?
2: So we need to be asking our politicians, what's the transition plan? What's the plan for transition of LANL from nuclear weapons to something else? What's the plan? Everybody say it in unison. What's, What's the plan? The plan? <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, thank you everybody for being here and thank the panelists for all the work you do to rid the world of these awful weapons. Thank you.
0: To which I add my thanks on behalf of myself and the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat, to the activists, Joni Ahrens, Scott Kovac, Eric Kirshner, Ken Myers, Sarit Katowski, and moderator Bud Ryan, for participating in the August 8th panel discussion of the annual Taos Environmental Film Festival. Additional and essential thanks to Jean Stevens and the Taos Environmental Film Festival for putting on this event, and to Robin Collier of KCEI Radio in Taos for producing this audio for her station and by allowing Nuclear Hot Seat to benefit from her hard work. We will have links to the activists' websites and a few others where you can listen to the entire recording of the panel up on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode number 530. And no matter where you are, but especially if you're in New Mexico, after listening to this, get involved. We need a groundswell of concerned citizens putting pressure on our legislators to turn this insane nuclear expansion around. And the time to start doing it is right now.
3: activists, Activists, shout out, shout
0: out, shout out. And while you're at it, here is another easy, elegant action you can take to disempower the nuclear weapons industry by hitting them where it hurts most, in the money. Don't Bank on the Bomb is a system for divesting funds from those companies that are actively involved in the design and manufacture of nuclear weapons. This brief explanation of how the campaign works is ably voiced by Susie Snyder. She coordinates the research, publication, and campaigning activities for the group and is on the steering committee of ICANN. This brief explanation was recorded at Dr. Helen Caldicott's Symposium on Possible Nuclear Extinction on February 28,
7: 2015. It's amazing. It's called Don't Bank on the Bomb. And that's the website, too. Don'tBankOnTheBomb.com. Step one, find out if your bank invests in nuclear weapon producers. Step two, contact your bank. Tell them you don't want them to. Step three, tell the world what the bank says. And if they don't, get rid of investments. Go public, because no bank wants to look like a bad guy. It takes one or two people only to make a huge difference, and that can cut off the money stream to the companies that make nuclear weapons. You and I, we have more power than we think, and that power is sitting in our wallet. And how can people find out whether the companies that we're told the bank is supporting have any connection with the nuclear weapons industry? Well, we do a, a significant investigation every year. Now, it's not completely exhaustive, but we profile 28 companies that have association with nuclear weapons modernization and maintenance. And it's on our website, don'tbankonthebomb.com. And we really want people to use our information and contact us all the time. You can do that in, you know, through the website really easily. Contact me on Twitter, whatever works. And I'm happy to find out more. And if you find out, learn about more companies involved in nuclear weapons, tell us. We'll do the research and we'll make it public for everybody to use. Love it. I loved it
0: when I first heard about it, and I love it still. Susie Snyder of Don't Bank on the Bomb. The website is don'tbankonthebomb.com. And if you need a link, You'll find it on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 530. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 17, 2021. Our thanks again to Robin Collier of KCEI 90.1 FM in Red River, New Mexico, a member of the Nuclear Hot Seat Broadcast Network that gets our show from the Pacifica Audio Port Network. Robin recorded the panel discussion we featured today for KCEI and then offered the program to us for use by Nuclear Hot Seat, for which we are grateful. We're also grateful to Gene Stevens and the Tallis Environmental Film Festival for putting on this event to begin with. Other material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.com, The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, Don't Bank on the Bomb, The Times of India, Op-Ed News, Bristol BristolPost.co.uk, Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NEARS.org, KyotoNews.net, TownCommonMedia.com, Strangesounds.org, Japrensaltina.com, CommonDreams.org, cypress-mail.com, and the captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating Nuclear Regulatory Commission. You should all know by now that you don't want to miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat because who knows, it might be around some site that's right around your corner. So what you can do is go to our website, nuclearhotseat.com. There's a yellow box there where if you put in your first name and your email address and send it to us, you'll be on our database and we will send you one email a week, which has that week's link to an episode and a brief summary of what's included. We don't sell our list or give it away or beat you over the head with it. Just one a week and you get the show. It's easy. Do it. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send that information in an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Please don't use Facebook Messenger. Things just get lost there. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment, go to nuclearhotseat.com, and look for that big red button. Click on it, follow the prompts, and know that anything you do will help and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications, all rights reserved but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we can always come up with the date that a nuclear emergency begins But we can never come up with a date that it's over, because once it starts, it's never over. That's it. There you go. You've just had your nuclear wake up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking?